Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to the 15th episode of Tudoriferous, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines life in the Tudor era. And today, Perkin Warbeck. Mmm, a big one. A big one. A big one. So big, in fact, that it's a three-parter. Yes. We've decided that we are not going to be restricted to trying to make one episode per person because we really enjoy going in-depth with all the research and then giving you the interesting information. So we're going to be all over the place with the number of episodes per person. Yep, and Perkin, he's got, he's got lots of different chapters in his life and each chapter is an episode in itself. Okay. So. <laughs> So yes, it has been quite a while since we've done Empson, and this is the dreaded quiz. I did listen back. In fact, I must have been so engrossed. I was making bread, and I put it to, mm-hmm. to rise, and it didn't. And then I suddenly thought, I don't know, I haven't put any <laughs> yeast, or sugar, or salt. <laughs> I've done that. I've done that. <laughs> No, the quiz. And I did go with only stuff about Empson and tried to make it as easy as possible because I know we recorded this, what, in November. And this mm. is now the new year. A long time back. Yeah, because we did a glut of them just be- before the Christmas, what we thought was going to be the Christmas break, but didn't turn out to be. <laughs> okay, so question number one. How did getting fired help Empson? Um, because most people who worked for Richard III then didn't work, didn't get jobs with Henry the Seventh, yes. and because he'd been fired, he managed to get a job yes. with, with Henry. Ding ding ding. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> number two. What was wrong with Empson creating his four hundred acre park? He turfed out an entire village. I thought that was so important to remember. Like, he just made a whole bunch of people homeless. Why? So he could have a park. <laughs> okay, number three. Why was Empson worse than the rest of the new men in terms of crown finances? In terms of, oh, because he pocketed more of it himself than he 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 gave to the crown. Well, didn't necessarily pocket more than he gave to the crown, but he pocketed more than most people did. Yes, yes, he was the number one for taking everything for himself that he possibly could. Mm-hmm. Number four. So far, you're you're three out of three. Mm. How did Empson intimidate the court during his case against Plumpton? He took he. Brought a load of thugs with him, didn't he? Thugs? Thugs. Um, he, he made it so difficult for the jury that Plumpton couldn't put his own people on the jury because they would be beaten up. Is that the one? Sort of. You were closer <laughs> with the thugs. Right, okay. Um... He he was a thug. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you half a point. He brought the yeoman of the guard oh, with yes, him and 200 right. armed retainers. It's surprising the yeoman of the guard actually agreed to go. 
Yes. Or that Henry agreed to let them go. I know. If indeed he knew. I'm mm. wondering if he knew. After that episode of Empson, I'm starting to wonder during this point in his career if he actually had any idea of what was happening. I was thinking, actually, because when we started doing this season, we read quite a few books about Henry. Mm-hmm. And they tell you what he did and where mm-hmm. he was. and things. Mm-hmm. But it's only doing other people and other people's views of Henry that you actually get to know Henry as a person, isn't it? Yes. Whereas the yeah, books it... about him... No, it was very one-dimensional. I'm getting a feel for him, I think. And the more you hear about what people were doing around him, the more you think, that poor man. (laughs) (laughs) And he was ill. Yes. Okay, number five. Why was Empson not with the king when Henry died? He was in London. Yes. Because he was doing something in London. What was he doing in London? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what he was doing now. I'll give no. you half a point for that, too. <laughs> he was in London running the country. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was, was it his job? I mean, he was... Uh, only four people were completely in charge at that instant when Henry was done. Henry had taken himself away to be reclusive as he was ill to recover. So Empson and Dudley were two of the people and two of their sort of henchmen were with them running Mm. the country and that's how they managed to be ousted. Mm. So not bad. Four out of five. And it's been since November. Yeah. Well, he was quite a memorable person. Yeah, but not in a good way. (laughs) No. A bit more memorable than Mr. Cabot. Yeah, but even then... Cabot seemed more fun. Yeah. Yeah, even though he just sort of looked at the coast and (laughs) ran away. (laughs) Yeah, bless him. Right. Onward. Okay. Enough quizzing already. Let's get on with it. Right, the first decision is what to call him. In the book Perkin by Anne Rowe, she calls him by whatever name he was known by at the time. So he's Piers when he's in Portugal, Richard when he's in the courts of Margaret of Burgundy and Maximilian, Perkin Warbeck after his capture. Ooh. So I can understand why she's done this. It, it makes sense, because to do anything else would be to put weight behind one interpretation of his life over another. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I was getting really confused for a second. How do I know of two names? Well, precisely. Um, it does make it quite complicated. It's a, it sort of works in a big book. Okay. But I think in a podcast of an hour or so, it would be too difficult. tricky. Okay. Yeah. So I've made the executive decision to stick to the name by which we still know him, and I'm going to call him Perkin. Okay. Uh, but that doesn't mean he definitely wasn't the Duke of York. <laughs> really? Oh, no. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've, 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 I've been quite an eye-opener for me, this one. Okay. Well, I'm already surprised. I thought this was going to be all about the pretender. I had no idea we were going to even consider the Ah, fact that Ah, well, that's the other thing. The word pretender comes from the French pretendre, meaning to claim. So they're claimants. They're not pretenders in the sense. It doesn't have any indication of duplicity. Oh. Oh. So, I mean, yeah, in English now, it implies that they're a dodgy lot that setting themselves up to be something they shouldn't be. Yeah. Henry VII was a pretender. 
Yes, he was. Mm. But it never occurred to me that we'd be considering a different meaning for that word. I don't know why. I'm finding tons of words that have a completely different meaning. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> right, that's the second decision is which of these three possible scenarios is the true one? And you can make the decision now and then again at the end and we'll see if the two tally. Okay. Okay, one, Perkin was an out-and-out fraud. Okay. Two, he really believed he was Richard, Duke of York. He was seduced by chivalric tales and was groomed for the role by powerful people. Okay. Brainwashed, possibly. Okay. Or three, he was Richard, Duke of York. I'm actually going for number two, because I think everybody wanted to get rid of Henry, and he would have been encouraged to think that he was the real okay. claimant to the throne. Yeah, I'm going to go with number two. He's a puppet. Okay, so at the end of part three, we'll see if you still sort of agree with yourself. Okay. Right, this is easily the most difficult episode or episodes I've done so far. Okay. There are so many possible versions. I thought I'd just tell the story of how he was adopted by various heads of state and tricked them. And then at the end, I'd come in, sort of bam, with his confession, and it would all be made clear. Yeah. But then I read that the confession may have been written by Henry VII, and maybe yet another made-up story. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> in lots and lots of made-up stories. We really are turning into a revisionist podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Completely unintentionally, too. <laughs> But it seems that all the characters in the story, and there was a cast of thousands, it was really quite tricky deciding who to keep in and who was expendable. They all tell a different story. They all have their own axes to grind. So it's by its nature complex, since we're dealing with the princes in the tower, which is obviously the biggest mystery in English history. Yes. And one we've got to cover in a Tudor podcast, because it's what enabled Henry VII to get his foot in the door. Yeah. But I apologise, there are an awful lot of questions in this episode, most of which will remain without a definitive answer. <laughs> if you like answers, don't listen. <laughs> I don't mean that. Uh, it's all very speculative because we just don't know for sure. Right. But it's not shortage of information. There's plenty of information. God knows there's plenty of information. <laughs> very contradictory. Okay. Yeah. But there are various possible accounts from various people, so it's difficult to know how to approach it. Because I couldn't even just run it chronologically and say, well, this is what somebody says. And at the same time, they say that this was happening to him. Because it just it doesn't work like that. It doesn't fit. Okay. Each one told a completely different story. So oh, was he here? Was he there? What's he doing? So we don't even... Well, I guess we don't have records. Like if, When they were landing, yes, they used passports, but the passports didn't necessarily tell you what they started their travel date, start date, and arrival date. It was just, yes, you can travel. All these um, things like that have been subsumed into what all these various people want you to know as well. Right. Awesome. So this is going to be a three-parter, as I said, with the first part mainly covering who he might have been. And then the second and third parts looking at his life. All 25 years of it. Oh, that's so short for a three-parter. He turned <laughs> a lot in. <laughs> and then there may be an extra episode on the conspirators against Henry in England. Okay. So, yeah, January is perkin Uary. <laughs> so I'm going to start with the first lines of David Copperfield, which is a bit of out of our period, but mm -hmm. it seems quite apt. 
Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life, or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. So you can decide at the end whether Perkin does turn out to be the hero of his own life or not. But I would just say that in all the books I read, which is Perkin, The Perkin-Warbeck Conspiracy and The Survival of the Princes in the Tower, mm-hmm. Perkin himself hardly even appears as a person in his own right. Wow. So, with all that massive proviso, <laughs> come with me, if you will, to the docks of Dublin. A boat has just docked, ropes have been tied, decks have been swabbed, and the cargo has been unloaded. The deckhands swarm down the gangplank and onto the dock, eager to spend their cash in the best inns and boardy houses that Dublin has to offer. But amongst them is a peacock, a butterfly, and a feet self-possessed young man clothed all over in silk and brocade. Who is this man? He is spotted by a group of men who are gathered at the entrance to the docks. As he walks by, they call out to him, Excuse me, my good sir, but aren't you Edward, the Earl of Warwick? No, sir, not I. And he walks on. But they follow him. But then surely you are John, the late King Richard's bastard son. You are mistaken, sir, I am not that man. He continues on his way. In that case, my lord, you must be Richard, the Prince of York. The young man stops and turns slowly round. Keep talking, he says. <laughs> So to Francis Bacon, he was a curious piece of marble. To Edward Hall, he was a doll. To Isabella of Castile, he was a joke. To Henry VII, he was the feigned lad, or just le garçon. On a pub sign in Taunton, he is the Perkin Warbeck. He's usually just seen as an irritant, a gadfly buzzing around Henry. But with his European and Scottish supporters, he very nearly succeeded in toppling the king. On 17th of August 1473, a son was born to Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville, and they called him Richard. A year or so later, a son was born to Shahan de Verbeck and Catherine Ferru. He was called Periquin Osbeck, or something similar. He's called by many names. Names were a lot more fluid in those days, weren't they? Yes, they were. In 1483, after Edward IV had died, and Richard III had declared the princes illegitimate and taken the crown for himself, Richard, Duke of York, and his brother Edward were confined in the Tower of London and never seen again. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 yeah. (laughs) So who was Perkin Warbeck? So the first thing to consider is, was was he definitely the lad from Flanders, or could he actually have been Richard, Duke of York? So we don't really need to know who killed the princes so much as were they actually killed, or could he have been someone else? I offer you four options as to where Perkin Warbeck sprang from. You don't have to choose because <laughs> nobody else has got this worked this out over the years. So, so that will take up most of the episode. Let's assume that Perkin Warbeck was the lad from Tournai. And I looked up Tournai in Wikipedia, and under famous people born in Tournai, it says Perkin Warbeck imposter. <laughs> <laughs> so they've made their opinion. Yeah, I hope we're a bit more nuanced in this podcast. Mm-hmm. We usually are. Anyway, let's go with the story presented by Perkin in his confession. All right, well, this is what he says. He says his name was Piers Osbeck, or something similar. Names were very fluid in those days. He was the son of boatman John Osbeck. As a small boy, he lived with his aunt where he learnt Flemish. He was then sent back home as war broke out against Maximilian. 
Age nine or ten, he went to Antwerp with a merchant of Tournai, where he fell ill, probably with the plague that carried his siblings off. Yeah. It took him five months to recuperate, lodging with a skinner. On to Bergen op Zoom, where he was hired by a merchant. He was then hired by Sir Edward Brampton's wife and taken to Portugal in Easter 1487. Do we know what his jobs were for all of those? Well, it varies. At one point oh. he said he was making leather purses. Okay. See, here's our problem. <laughs> <laughs> as we will see later, it benefited Henry to make him seem as lowly as possible. Right. But he may not have been a boatman's son. He may have been a, a boat owner's son or, you know, who owned a fleet of boats. Or right. And we're told also that he had a good education and was actually an organ scholar. Oh. Which we'll come to later. Okay. So we've already got two different things. If, if he is Perkin. Yes. And that's if he is. And there's plenty of other choices. Yeah, as I say, Henry VII was keen that Perkin should be seen merely as a boatman's son, as this played into his desire to humiliate all those who took Perkin's side. Right. And played up his royal connections. So just saying, mm -hmm. look, he's not a prince. He's just a, just a boatman's son. Yeah. Although when Henry sent people out to scour Europe to find out where this pretender had come from, he was sent back reports of a drunken boatman forever being fined for brawling and at one point being sent on pilgrimage as a punishment. Now, this may have been a matter of telling Henry what these people thought he wanted to hear. Okay. Two, two of the people dispatched to find information about Perkin, William Perron, an astrologer, and Richard Nanfan, deputy lieutenant of Calais, both later said that they'd been terrified that Henry would have them executed if they didn't come up with the goods. Oh. So Perkins' father, as I said, is probably more of a merchant. Mm -hmm. um, and when Perkins' mum died, she left a will that was 60 centimetres wide and a metre long, so she obviously had something to leave. Yes. <laughs> unless, unless she had very big writing. So they obviously <laughs> went impoverished. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would have spoken French, which is why he was sent by his mother to learn Flemish. Mm -hmm. And this would have been essential for a merchant since Flanders was separated into the French South and more Germanic North. It would be interesting to speculate why Perkin, in a confession penned by his own hand, should have changed his stories so markedly. Oh. And when you say penned by his own hand, it may not have been. That's in inverted commas, okay. definitely. Okay. And we will speculate about that later. How did a young lad from Tornai end up in Portugal? Bruges did a lot of trade with Portugal, Spain and Italy, and someone who had been living in Bruges and was now in Lisbon was Sir Edward Brampton, an important character in this story. Somehow Perkin knew his wife, and in Easter 1487 he sailed with her to Portugal, and some sources show Perkin as Lady Brampton's servant, you know, sort of lady domestic staff. Okay. Seems more likely he's probably a companion on the long, tedious voyage to Lisbon. Okay. He's probably going as a trainee merchant. Sir Edward Brampton's an interesting character. He was a Portuguese merchant, adventurer, importer of grains of paradise. That's the stuff used in spiced wine. Okay. And governor of Guernsey. He'd fled from Portugal to England after he killed a man who questioned his legitimacy. And he was actually illegitimate, so oh. <laughs> he had every reason to do so. Yes. He fought in several engagements during the War of the Roses. He was the godson of Edward IV. Because Brampton was a converted Jew, and Edward IV often stood godfather for converted Jews. Really? Yeah. 
I don't know if that was all kings or whether that was just an Edward thing. I've never heard of that, so I have no mm. idea. Perhaps it's just an Edward thing, then. He'd been a member of Edward's household, and so might have been expected to know Edward's children, at least to recognise them. Really? And he was knighted by Richard III, and when Henry VII came to the throne, Brampton fled for the court of Margaret of Burgundy. And we'll be hearing a lot more about her later. Since Brampton had been in Edward IV's court, some have speculated that it was him who taught Perkin how to be a prince, or the court etiquette, and whatnot. Right. However, Sir Brampton played down his links with the boy. He implied that they'd just taken Perkin with them reluctantly because he pleaded, and once they reached Portugal, Brampton quickly passed the boy on to someone else, or so he said. But then he probably would want to put a bit of space between himself and the man who was by that time terrorising the English king. Hmm. Especially since, by this point, Brampton was actually working for Henry, so he's oh not going goodness. to say, <laughs> yes, say, oh yes, I taught that boy everything he knows. <laughs> Oops, sorry. So why did Perkin travel to Portugal? There was plague and war in Flanders, so he probably needed to get out, especially if he already had the plague. Mm-hmm. Brampton was a merchant, so Perkin could learn the trade from him. There were plenty of Flemish merchants already trading with merchandise from home and also from Africa. In, uh, in Portugal, you know, lovely things like ivory, skins. Ostrich feathers. Yeah. <laughs> Trains of paradise and slaves. It's even suggested that Perkin went on a trip to Senegal, but it's not oh. been confirmed that that small person that went to Senegal was Perkin, but some people seem to think it was. Okay. But it was in Lisbon that Perkin entered the service of the Breton merchant, and I'm going to call him Pregent Mino, because... Okay. Well, I don't know how to pronounce it, so... (laughs) Fair. (laughs) This this seems as good a choice as any. A trader in silk, and he travelled with him. And when they reach Cork, Perkins says in his confession that he was obliged to model some of his boss's silks. Yes. And it was at that point he was approached by a group of men, including John Atwater, twice mayor of Cork, with an offer he couldn't refuse. Well, at least he didn't refuse. (laughs) So according to the confession... The men who met him in Ireland initially told him he was Edward of Warwick, and Perkins swore he was not. The men then said that he was the bastard son of Richard III, he swore he was not, and Richard, Duke of York, was the third choice, to which he said he reluctantly agreed. Mm-hmm. Which is a bit odd, isn't it? I mean, that's mm-hmm. very strange to say, I don't want to be that one, I don't want to be that one. Yeah. Okay, I'll be that one. <laughs> and especially if he was a young lad from Flanders, would he even have heard of Richard, Duke of York? No. Or any of the other people. Because he never got... Well, I wonder if the... I wonder if the tale of Richard getting rid of the boys was so horrendous that it did make the rounds in Europe. Yeah. Whether he did or not. Mm Mm-hmm. Perkins said that the first thing they had to do was to teach him English. I mean, why would you choose someone that didn't speak English to play the part of an English prince? Right. I mean, you're just adding extra layers of difficulty. Yes. He must have spoken some to know what they were telling him, but he said in his confession that he didn't want to learn English, so it must have been hard work <laughs> teaching him. And Atwater would have had an Irish accent anyway, so that would have been a bit of a giveaway, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> if he was the one that taught him. Who did teach him the etiquette of the court? I mean, Atwater was of the merchant class, so it can't be him. And the Irish nobility, quite interested in what Perkin was up to, were notoriously more lax in court etiquette than the English ones, so they might not have known. Right. You know, Brampton. But people flocked to Perkin as he admitted himself. And it wasn't just that he liked his clothes. 
it was that he had already taken on the persona of a prince, and letters were sent out to the Irish nobles announcing, well, hey, here comes the prince. That sounds so quick. None of this hangs together. No. Properly. No. This, I mean, this is his own confession. Incidentally, the Breton merchant, I forgot what I said now, pregnant, pregnant, make pregnant. me know, did I go with it? Something <laughs> it like sounded that. like pregnant to me. <laughs> Well, he was arrested at sea, having conveyed Perkin to Ireland, because Henry knew that Perkin was in Ireland, but why was he so interested? I mean, he was just a lowly deckhand. Oh. So, wait, Henry already knew about him, and they hadn't yet claimed he was Richard? Well, the timeline here is a bit vague. Could be talking about months. I mean, he's already learning right. to English and everything. It's... Yeah. In the in the confession, it sounds as if, you know, sort of, bam, 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 everything happens. But yeah. He doesn't mention any time okay. scale for it. Okay. So all this assumes that the princes did die in the tower and that Perkin was fraudulently using the name of Richard, Duke of York. But what proof, if there's proof in any of this, is there that this was the case? Okay. Well, Shakespeare said so. And Thomas More said so. Yeah. But both of them were writing for English people. Yes, and Ricardians, I think, dismissed both of them. Well, mm -hmm. certainly Shakespeare, obviously. Thomas More said that Tyrrell was arrested for the crime, yet More's brother-in-law, Rastall, who wrote an account 15 years later, never mentions Tyrrell, so all the stories about the... About... None of them match. No, they don't. And Rastall had one version that someone shouted, treason, treason, and the young princes were induced to climb into a chest for safety. And this is really nasty, actually. A box, the box was locked and buried under the stairs. Oh, and that's where... Didn't they find skeletons under the stairs of children? Yes, they did. But it turns out skeletons pop up all over the place in, in Tower of London, including one that they thought might be Edward V. Mm -hmm. And it turned out... it So sad. It turned out it was... Um, I can't remember if it was a chimp or an orangutan that had escaped from the menagerie and got trapped in one oh. of the rooms. <laughs> How would so, you not hear the poor thing? And how also would you confuse a chimpanzee with the body of a 10-year-old, or whatever he was, 12-year-old <laughs> I child. thought that would never be a possibility, but I worked on a project where when we did some digging, we thought we found human remains. Well, mm -hmm. we thought we found a bone, a human bone. And we ended up having to take it to experts who were like zoologist experts. And it turns out it was the a, a bone of a mule deer that is almost the exact size and shape of a human femur. So mm. it, it, it took a couple of weeks for them to determine that it was not human. Oh, well, I take it all back then. And when we look at how dinosaurs were originally put together, yes. <laughs> and how I can see that there's been mistakes in the past, some orangutans, I don't know, or yeah. an ape. Well, they, first of all, they thought they were titans, didn't they? The dinosaur bones. Yes. They thought they were going to giants. <laughs> Maybe thought that Elizabeth Woodville couldn't possibly have reached an agreement with Richard III if he killed her sons. But she still had the rest of her children to protect. She had the rest of her children. And also, you have to remember that Richard had already killed not only her brother, Anthony Earl Rivers, but also her youngest son by her first marriage, mm -hmm. Sir Richard Grey. So and who knows what's going on in her mind. So it's not necessarily an argument no. that the boys hadn't been killed. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Henry VII reversed the Act of Parliament declaring Edward IV's children illegitimate so he could marry Elizabeth of York implies that he was sure that the princes were dead. Yeah. yeah. Because he knew they had a better claim to hit than he did. But, I mean, actually, did he have any choice? 
he'd promised to marry Elizabeth. It was part of the deal to get the Yorkist on board. He Maybe he just crossed his fingers and hoped for the best and just lay awake in a cold sweat every night, thinking, please don't let them come back. Please don't let them come back. <laughs> <laughs> and that was why he went pretty much overboard with Perkin. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I have to say about him being Perkin Warbeck. So let's assume now, option two, that Perkin did have royal blood and that he was Richard, Duke of York. Okay. Okay, we look at the time, possible timeline for that, which is obviously completely different to the Perkin Warbeck timeline. This is the interpretation, assuming Perkin was Richard, based on the book by Matthew Lewis, The Survival of Princes in the Tower. So the princes were not murdered by their uncle. They were, in fact, protected by him. They were reunited with their mother, who emerged from sanctuary and felt safe giving their, her daughters to Richard III's custody. The boys were probably separated, Edward perhaps heading north with his sister, Elizabeth, and the Earl of Lincoln may have cared for Edward in the household of the Council of the North, where Elizabeth and Edward, Earl of Warwick, were also raised. But there's one small point with this. I was thinking, when Henry came to the throne, one of the first things he did was order Edward, Earl of Warwick, to be sent to London. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I, either Edward V was very well concealed, or he'd have thought he'd say, oh, and bring that one as well. He's, he's more, more of a problem than the other one. Yes. Matthew Lewis says Richard was taken across the channel to Auntie Margaret of Burgundy, where both kids would be safe, but they'd also be prevented from threatening Richard. So in this scenario, Richard, Duke of York, was entrusted to Margaret by Sir James Tyrrell, who was acting as Richard III's go-between, providing money for the boy's care, and not, as in the Shakespeare version, holding a pillow over his face. Do we have any financial records showing that he was... So, well, we have financial records. They don't necessarily show specifically that this was what they were for. During January 1485, James Tyrrell was made the commander of the Castle of Guise in the enclave of Calais. And soon after, Richard III sent him a vast amount of money. And why? I mean, there could be several reasons. Mm -hmm. One of the things, they were trying to bribe Pierre Landley, the chief minister of Duke Francis II of Brittany, and the man who was taking advantage of Francis's incapacity to do deals with Richard III. So, yeah, there was a few deals going on there. Mm -hmm. A second possibility was just to provide troops to defend Brittany. That would cost money. It was quite likely, a bit boring. Yeah. Or the third possibility, which is obviously the ones Ricardians would go for, to provide funds for one or both of Edward IV's son, who may have been whisked away across the sea. Hmm. I mean, that's pure speculation. But most of this is pure speculation because the everything is conflicting. You have to just yeah. sort of... That's know. what made writing these episodes so difficult because ev literally everything you approach in these early days, it's a bit, a bit easier once his life gets going yeah. as Prince. Everything's so muddled. It seems that there were more links to Perkin that Sir Edward Brampton implied in his statement, which said that Perkin came and went and he barely noticed him. Brampton, as I said, served Richard III, and in July 1483, not long after the princes were committed to the Tower, he was paid £350 for unspecified services. That's a lot of money. He received another £100. Well, we don't know why, but <laughs> more speculation. Could the money have been given to him by Richard III to spirit the boys away? Or at least Richard. Mm-hmm. And take him to Flanders, where the boy could live incognito under Margaret Burgundy's protection. And to, yeah, until... At the age of 20, he suddenly pops up and says, Hello, I'm Richard Duke of York. <laughs> Many people over the centuries have claimed just that. Yeah, but with how... 
We haven't gotten to her yet, but Margaret of Burgundy was very antagonistic towards Henry VII. If she had had him, I think she would have right at the beginning said, no, you are not the king. I have the king right here. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very strong argument. Yeah. But I'm just putting out all the arguments I came across that people have yeah. put forward over the years. Of which there are many. <laughs> Seems like it. <laughs> we have a plethora to choose from. <laughs> a plethora. Oh, do you know where the word plethora comes from? No, not a clue. It's from the humours, from Galen's view of the human body. Really? A plethora is too much blood in your body. That's why you need bleeding. Really? Yeah. So it's that specific, and now it's got a fake term. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Leave that in. That's really neat. But Margaret probably wouldn't have been able to help him with everything he knew about the English court that later impressed everybody, because she'd been away from the court for so long. Yes, and she was quite young when she was moved, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and she only went back once. So in order to educate Richard in the art of the English court life, maybe Brampton was ideally placed. Mm-hmm. So he pops up a lot, and each time he pops up, he's doing something completely different. <laughs> But nobody else's memory could help him describe his escape from the tower and the death of his brother. But if we're talking about such a young boy, it's possible that he just didn't remember. Well, in a letter to Isabella of Castile, one of many he sent out to heads of states, or were sent out on his behalf, this is what he said. When the Prince of Wales, eldest son of Edward, King of England, of pious memory, my very dear lord and father, was put to death, a death to be pitied, and I myself, at about the age of nine, was also given up to a certain lord to be killed, it pleased divine clemency that this lord, pitying my innocence, should preserve me alive and unharmed. However, he forced me first to swear upon the sacred body of our lord that I would not reveal my name, lineage, or family to any one at all until a certain number of years had passed. Then he sent me abroad. A certain lord... And a certain number of years. It's a bit vague, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. That, for yeah. some reason, I thought he was younger. I, I don't know where I got that idea. Nine, you don't... You would remember escaping. You'd remember that if your brother had been murdered in front of yes. you, and then and then the prince had been about to murder, and then got, then said, no, I can't do it. <laughs> Come on. Yes, I think, you I think that was sticking the in whole mind. thing. But there's no mention about how his brother died. I mean, you think they'd say... I mean, they use, he used the Latin word... Extinguere, extinguished. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd, I think you'd say if he was suffocated. Or, I mean, there's been taught suffocation, slit throat, you know, buried in a box. Yes. I think you'd, especially as a young boy, you'd be they're quite ghoulish, aren't they? <laughs> I think you'd go into a lot of detail. Yeah. As to the certain lord, some sources say it was the Duke of Buckingham who couldn't kill Richard because he was his godfather but he could kill Edward because he wasn't. Yeah. That doesn't make sense to me. Hmm. Anyway, reasons to assume that the boys were still alive. Well, Virgil says so. As well as telling the story of Richard III commanding James Tyrrell to kill the princes, he goes on to say, it was generally reported and believed that the sons of Edward IV were still alive, having been conveyed secretly away and obs obscurely concealed in some distant region which is an odd line for an official Tudor historian to take, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But he might, they might be dead, but they might not. It's incredibly... Everything has a little bit of a possibility. 
Mm. But, that's why it's been so difficult to, to sort this out because you think, I don't know, is that even, you know, it's, it's, it's supposition. Is it supposition strong enough to, to go with it? I don't know. Francis Bacon, admittedly writing in 1621, talked about secret rumours and whisperings that the young sons of King Edward IV, or one of them, which were said to be destroyed in the tower, were not murdered, but conveyed secretly away and were yet living. So that it was still around as a possibility in 1621. Hmm. And if Richard III murdered his nephews to strengthen his position, it massively backfired. Yes, it did. Yeah, it could, yeah, it could only strengthen his position if everyone was sure they were dead. The uncertainty did more harm than good. Yeah, and at that point, if he had realised that the uncertainty wasn't working, then you just say, here they are. Well, I suppose yeah. he'd already claimed them illegitimate, yeah. Yeah. But does this imply they're not dead? Because he couldn't say for definite that they were. <laughs> I mean, displaying the dead bodies and blaming natural causes or somebody else would have been a much better... Yes. <laughs> than, ...than silence. I don't know. And it's just made it so frustrating for us. I mean, he should have thought ahead. Yeah, definitely. After the failed Buckingham Rebellion and his execution, why did Richard not say the princes were dead and blame Buckingham? Because that would have implicated Henry VII. Yes. Well, and, Henry Tudor as well. And was. ended the whole problem. Does that imply that they were still alive? That he couldn't... Oh, no. <laughs> and if Elizabeth Woodville had thought her sons were dead, wouldn't she have arranged masses to be said for their souls? Which doesn't appear to have been the case. I, see, and then we're going to go with the fact that I, I have known in some past histories where the mother would refused to accept that her sons were gone or her children were gone and mm. continued to act as if they were around somewhere. Well, there's another possibility. Add that one to the pile. Oh, no. <laughs> there isn't even one you talked about. <laughs> Elizabeth Woodville didn't accuse Richard and neither did Perkin, apart from calling him an unnatural uncle. Yeah, because you would think once Richard was dead, she would be safe to say, this man killed my children. Yeah, she. Yeah, why didn't she? And why didn't Perkin, unless he didn't want to upset Auntie Margaret in mm. Burgundy, because he was quite reliant on her by that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and why did Henry Seventh, when he came to the throne, not say the princes were dead? I mean, it would have blackened Richard's name and got rid of the threat they represented, especially since he'd just reversed the titulus regius, which had made them mm -hmm. illegitimate. So, did that imply they were still alive? I don't think that implies they're still alive. I think everybody at that point was, it was common knowledge that the boys were gone. Well, that's what I thought. But, I mean, from what Virgil said, there was enough talk that... Oh, that he should have made that statement. Yeah. But then, how could you prove it? How could he prove it if he didn't have the bodies? That's what makes it all so difficult. I mean, there was rumours going all around Europe as well. I mean, France had every incentive to claim that the boys had been killed by Richard, whether they had or not, because Richard III was seen by Louis the Louis XI as the greatest threat to France. Yeah. Because he had refused to attend the Treaty of Piccigny, at which Edward IV agreed not to fight France in return for nice fat pensions for himself and his nobles. Right. And Richard had fought the Scots, France's old allies, so they had every reason to darken Richard's character and present the rumour of the death of the princes as fact all across Europe. Mm-hmm. You know what Louis XI was like. You know, if there was intrigue to be had, he was doing it. He was in the middle of it. He was the cause, really. <laughs> <laughs> but he'd just died, and his 13-year-old son Charles had taken over, so they were in a weak state and everything, everything to fear from Richard. 
Right. And don't think that they'd be above putting around such rumours because we're coming to what Charles gets up to later. Oh, my. I mean, he was a chip off the old block as far as intrigue was concerned. Okay. Anyway, that's option two, that the <laughs> lads were still alive. <laughs> option three. <laughs> yep. And if your brain hasn't exploded by the end of this, I'd be very surprised. option, Virgil thought that Margaret of Burgundy had discovered Perkin and had schooled him in family history, but where she found him or how she came by him was not known by him. However, in the autumn of 1478, Margaret's accounts show that she took an interest in what was described as an English child, and she arranged for his schooling, paid for his clothes and food, and bought him a pair of skates which was nice, and paid £8 for a surgeon when the child broke his leg. I don't know whether that was related to the skates or not. But But the dates aren't quite right for him to have been Richard, Duke of York himself. But could he, for instance, have been one of Edward IV's illegitimate children? He did have many, many, many illegitimate children. And did he reappear later, claiming, at Margaret's suggestion, to be the Duke of York? That would make sense for her, yeah, for her supporting him, because he's still one of her blood. Yeah, it really was family. Explains why Margaret, Maximilian and Philip stuck by him Mm -hmm. when everybody else had said, oh, for goodness sake, just leave it. Yeah. That would explain Margaret's distress when at Perkins' imprisonment, uh, although you'd like to think common humanity would do that. I'm not sure there was, I'm probably going to offend somebody, but I'm not sure there was common humanity back then. From everything we've been learning, I'm starting to wonder if anybody understood what empathy was. Compassion. (laughs) Those words did not exist at that point. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it would also explain the similarity between Perkin and Edward IV, which is commented on a lot. People looked at him and said, well, it must be him. He looks like Edward IV. Yes. Although, obviously... People would choose somebody who did look a bit like him. Yeah, that, that would make sense. So the third option was, he was not Duke of York, he was his half-brother. The cons for this theory is that most men didn't try to hide their illegitimate children, but often found the positions that were respectable, but not quite as high as their, their own legitimate yeah. ones. Yeah. But this was ten years after Margaret was married, and no child had come from the marriage. Maybe Edward understood how desperate Margaret was for a child, not just to fulfil her role as a wife, but to appease her maternal instincts. In 1490, a year before Perkin landed in Ireland, she started spreading the rumour that Prince Richard was still alive, as if she was setting the scene. Oh, okay. Making people receptive to the idea that he might suddenly appear out of the blue. Hmm. Whoever the child was, this theory revolves around Margaret and her desperation, A, for a child, and B, to get back at Henry. Right. So, that's another one. Hmm. So, and if you thought that was complicated, option four (laughs) is really complicated. (laughs) Right, this one seems so convoluted to be barely credible, but it's the basis of Arthurson's book, The Perkin Warbeck Conspiracy, and 
could be the right one. Yeah, we know what these people are like. That's why we chose to have one of our categories being intrigue. Yes. Because they're intriguing like the crappers in this. <laughs> this entire thing is nothing but intrigue. Yes, it really is. This It sort of settles down in parts two and three, but the part one, it just seemed to be that speculation and theories of things were coming at me from all, all directions. Yeah. Right, the background story of option four. Charles VIII of France wanted Brittany, but England, Burgundy and several other states had pledged to protect it. Henry felt some gratitude to Brittany for protecting him over all those years of his youth and for funding the first, albeit disastrous, invasion of England. France took possession of several Breton towns, prompting a huge Allied response. So that Swiss, Burgundians, Spanish and English troops poured into Brittany. So that by August 1489, only Brest remained in French hands. Charles wasn't happy. Henry and Maximilian started harrying the French in Flanders. So Charles realised he couldn't fight on two fronts, Brittany and Flanders. Okay. So he made peace with Maximilian. Don't worry, we are getting around to Burkitt eventually. Yes. I was sort of wondering, where are we going with this? <laughs> yeah, no, this is the whole reasoning behind it. So with a bit of, there's a bit of French diplomacy. The Pope sent an envoy to conduct negotiations between France and England, the outcome of which was that France would become de facto governor of Brittany, and they undertook to pay what Henry had spent on the war so far. And there would be an independent truce between France and Brittany. But I'm not sure how much input the Bretons had in this. It sounds like they... They weren't even consulted. <laughs> well, perhaps we'll find out in Duke Francis's episode. In December 1490, it became known that Maximilian had contracted to marry Anne of Brittany. Yes. France abandoned the negotiations with England and stepped up their plans to invade Brittany. Now, Brittany couldn't defend itself on its own, but it could with the help of the other European powers. So France's answer was to give the other powers other things to distract them. He distracted Maximilian by prolonging the war in Flanders. Okay. He did this by financing the uprising of dissidents. Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella were already busy getting the Moors out of Spain. Mm -hmm. Henry sent a fleet to protect Brittany's coast, which then sent France into panic. So Charles wanted to create a diversion whereby Henry would be too preoccupied to worry too much about what the French king was up to. And then in Ireland, all of a sudden, up pops Perkin. Okay. Now this bit is quite this bit is quite confusing, unlike all the rest. I was going to say, um, well, Charles immediately sent ships to Ireland for our cousin, the Duke of York, because he was true heir to the kingdom of of England. Well, this seems very fortuitous. I mean, where had he come from, and why mm -hmm. was Charles so keen to recognise him as the Duke? So two men, actually there's a lot more for, for clarity's sake, I'm focusing on the two. So it was back with John Atwater, merchant and twice mayor of Cork. And he was meant to be one of the people that accosted Perkin as he got off the ship. But now he has a slightly different role in this version. <laughs> and instead he, he actually shared the scaffold with Perkin in 1499. So Henry definitely saw him as one of the major players. The other gentleman was John Taylor, a former servant of, of George Duke of Clarence, who was now holed up in the French court. He was one of the people mentioned in Clarence Attainer, if you remember that. Yeah. And he was one of the people who ordered the switch of young Edward Plantagenet for another boy. Okay. Yeah, so Taylor continued in Warwick's cause after Henry had come to the throne, which implies actually that Edward in the Tower was the real one, since he wouldn't bother if it weren't. Yeah. And if anyone knew, he knew. 
Although Taylor's desire was to make Edward Plantagenet king, it shows that he saw Perkin purely as a means to distract Henry, not as king material himself. So this lad had been wheeled in just to keep purely him busy. as a distraction. Yeah, right. Okay. So John Taylor, it's John Taylor's plan that he mm-hmm. must have put to Charles VIII, and Charles VIII thought, "Great, <laughs> can't think of anything better." Yeah. John Taylor, he wasn't high-born. He was just a clothier, he was a surveyor of customs. From He was from Exeter. Then how did he get to give an opinion to the King of France? I... He was one of the English dissidents who went to the French court. But do they automatically get to speak to the king? Possibly, because Charles had told everyone who favoured Edward Plantagenet, you know, come on over. Because he said he was doing it, quote, for the wrong he did in making Henry King of England. (laughs) So Taylor chose to flee to France rather than Flanders, understanding that there's nothing Margaret Burgundy could do give him that France couldn't match ten times over. I mean, she was keen, but... Yeah, she didn't have the same resources. No. And he spent a lot of time moving backwards and forwards between France and England, visiting disaffected people and trying to persuade them to rise up against Henry. He was, yeah, he was going for the full... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Atwater was already in Ireland, and Taylor went over on the ships from France that Charles had sent to pick up Perkin. Perkin is referred to by Arthurson, who wrote the Perkin Warbeck conspiracy, as their creation, as if they were Dr. Frankenstein, sort of sewing up the Frank Benjamin personality of Perkin right. into the persona of the Duke of York. Right, which would just be done through training, really. Well, he makes it sound quite sinister. You know, brainwashing techniques don't have to be sophisticated, do they? They don't need drugs and complicated psychology. It's not hard to disorientate someone Mm -hmm. to the extent that they no longer know who they are, you know, and clutch at straws to find someone to be. And it's not hard to implant false memories either, is it? No, it really isn't. Mm. So later, following his capture in a letter to his mother, if indeed he wrote the letter to his mother, but we'll come to that (laughs) later. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) This is... Oh, dear. Perkins said he wasn't sure whether he'd been confused into taking the role or deceived into believing he was the Duke of York. So what happened to him at this point is important for deciding whether he was a fraud or whether he believed himself to be the Duke. They might have been brainwashed into believing it. If they got a hold of him young enough, that might not have been that difficult. Mm. Taylor stayed with Perkins throughout his entire career as Richard, which may be loyalty or it may have been to make sure he stuck to the script. Right. The first book I read, you think, oh, well, it's, he's sticking with him because he believes in him. And think. The second one... It's more about control. It's just hovering, yeah. Mm. Especially since Paul Perkin, he did tell Henry after he was captured that he'd, he'd wanted out a couple of years beforehand. He couldn't, but there may have been many reasons for that, but he said he just wanted to ditch the whole thing. Yeah. It couldn't. So the whole plan seems to have been Taylor's with the backing of Charles VIII. And I'm not sure about the chronology here, or indeed anywhere, but uh, did did Taylor find Perkin somewhere else and then arrange for him to arrive in Ireland to meet with, be met by Atwater and Chums? Or did Atwater contact Taylor and say, you'll never guess what's just appeared on the docks? And... <laughs> so it could fit in possibly with the other theory. It could be another theory on its own. This is the oh. most tangled <laughs> Yeah, tell me about so it. <laughs> I've been trying to untangle it and make it as clear as possible, but because you're sort of missing great chunks of it as you go along yeah. and trying to pick it up later on. But at the same time, this is probably how people would have felt. Yeah. Because all of that was going at the same time. 
Yes. Yes, you've got so many theories. As I was saying, you can't... Because uh, my original plan was, I thought, okay, I'll line all the various theories up and work through them chronologically and say he could have been here on this date or he yeah. could have been there. But for, for a lot of it, we haven't got the time scale right. to line it up. Right. So I just thought, okay, I'll just take each theory in turn and go and run with it right. and see where it takes us. Once he's safely ensconced in Charles's court, it all begins to level out a bit and become a bit more clear. Okay. This early, the early stages, especially since the three books I read, each told completely different stories. <laughs> I've never come across this before. In any, I mean, sometimes there's a different slant on, a, on the, these people, but I've not come across one with three entirely different stories before. No, it's just slightly different interpretations. But this is not this, this time. is no. all over the place. In each book I read, I thought, oh, God, <laughs> how am I going to fit this in? So anyway, plodding on, one source said that Perkin received an invitation from Charles VIII offering help against the criminal usurper Henry. Perkin accepted the invitation since he hadn't managed to gather as many people around him as he hoped, it being so soon, soon after the Simnel fiasco, which implies that he's already in Ireland claiming to be the Duke. Mm -hmm for some time, and then just mm -hmm. not enough Irish people have picked up on it. Okay. So Charles then sent a lot of ships. Why so many ships? That's what I couldn't understand. To pick up one man, he sent a whole load of ships oh, to pick him up. I have been learning quite a bit about this. The average um, fleet would lose, in some cases, up to half of those ships. So if you wanted to guarantee uh -huh. somebody would arrive or go to where you needed them to, and they had to go through that channel, you sent a fleet. You didn't send one. Even the merchants would split apart their uh, goods onto multiple ships with the hope that at least one of them would arrive on the other uh, other side. Yeah. Mind you, only one of these would have Perkin on it. You can't split him into <laughs> several ships. But... No, but you can transfer people from one ship to another. I found a few cases of that. I don't know how you do that in the middle of a storm when you're actually losing ships, but mm. yes. Well, it seems that I got the impression that Taylor thought that this was the pre-invasion force okay. to be used in conjunction with the English insurrection. And there's certainly no mention of an invasion in Perkin's confession. And it's not as if he'd you know, try and hide it because he already had three other invasions under his belt by the time he was making his confession. Right. I, you know, I got the impression that Taylor thought he would scoop Perkin up and take him to England and then the, this, all the English people would rise up against Henry. and Bob's your uncle. Yeah, easy, easy peasy. <laughs> but I'm not sure that was Charles's plan. Or if it had been, he might have modified it in the light of information coming from England. The ships did contain all the prerequisites for a nice little invasion. You had 120 surcoats embroidered with the cross of St. George and 140 shields with the same, mm -hmm. same on it. But these were for sneakily pretending to be the English army to confuse the opposition, which was apparently quite a common tactic. Oh. But there were weapons, and there was a suit of armour, white armour, which was presumably for Perkin. Okay. White. White, but I was thinking, you don't make a suit of armour off the peg, do you? You can't. No, they might have made a average size one and then got there and found he was 28 stone or something. And Yeah. So, which implies that they must have known Perkin beforehand. Maybe. At least as far as to get his vital statistics and make this... Or they could have put anybody in that armour, like picked a warrior to put them in the armour and just told them, don't lift up your visor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
so yeah. many times in this, I thought, but, 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 I never <laughs> got much further. <laughs> anyway, the invasion didn't happen. As far as I can tell, they just took Perkin back to France. Why was the, why didn't the invasion happen? Well, Henry was ahead of the game, as usual. Yes. As we shall see in the special episode following the English insurgents. He did a pretty good job of stamping all that out. Yeah. So even if they had gone to England, there wasn't going to be this rising that they'd hoped for. No. And also there was doubt in France as to the calibre of the people that were being recruited in England. There was not much in the way of nobility. No. In fact, there was not that much in the way of the merchant classes. It was... Uh, Peasants only? Yeah. Mm, yeah, pretty much. Not enough. Yeah, not enough and the wrong, yeah, not, not, not high enough. I got the impression that Taylor may have exaggerated to Charles' numbers and the quality of the right. people he recruited. And then Charles had obviously found out and thought, I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. And also in December 1491, when Henry heard of the landing in Ireland, he immediately sprang into action and sent a doctor of theology over to Ireland. And you don't mess with them. His role seems to have been to make sure the Irish bishops stayed on Henry's side since last time something like that happened. They crowned Lambert Zimnall. Yeah, so right. he needed to make sure that the bishops stayed. didn't start crowning people again. <laughs> and then he sent over a couple of commanders with troops. So Perkins' time in Ireland appears to be sent, spent in hiding, but Henry knew he was there. And at this point, he didn't know who he was, just someone cl claiming to be Richard. They told the Pope that he thought the French were behind it, so that's puts a bit more weight on that. Yeah. Uh, you know, nothing gets past Henry. But he was obviously under a lot of stress about it all because his apothecary bill was seven times larger than usual. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting, when Henry, Henry VII first heard that Perkin had arrived in Ireland, he immediately sent for his wife and mother to advise him. Well, you know why mum came. <laughs> you don't even want to say her name. <laughs> she who must be obeyed <laughs> but did he want his wife close by because he wanted her advice seems unlikely i don't the, well, know i don't know her advice on the on the man who was claiming to be her brother yeah that's what i was just thinking yeah. I mean, if this guy was supposed to be her brother if anybody would know him that he mm. could trust it would be her but also he suspected that Elizabeth Woodville might be involved in the plot. So did he want his wife close by, away from the mother's influence? Mm -hmm. Good possibility too. Yeah. And that's the trouble with all Yes. <laughs> so on the one hand, you think, yeah. And on the other hand, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perkin stayed in France for five... Here we go. We've gone to France now, so it should be a bit clearer. Okay. <laughs> you look defeated for a second, like, um, no, I won't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that those first first few months when he was in Ireland, I just, I, I found it impossible to, to put it all together in my own head, never mind on paper. But, yeah, so we're in, he's in France now. He stayed for five months, and we don't know what he did there. His chief minder was Alexander Moneypenny, which is very gratifying. Really? Yes. Isn't that the name of a Bond woman? She, she's the secretary, isn't she? Yes, Money it's Penny. Penny. Yeah, he's got. I wasn't. I know I had a mention of him. Just the fact his name's Money Penny. <laughs> <laughs> Envoys were sent to Perkin from Scotland and Burgundy, and he had a small court around him, which included Taylor and more refugees. Joined him as time went on, just as they had for Henry. 
And throughout this, we will be seeing the similarities between Perkin and Henry when he was in France and Brittany. Really? And I think that is why Henry was so terrified. Because he had been successful. Yes. And this guy was following the same route. Yes, the parallels. Okay. Are very, very obvious. Okay, that makes sense. Something made sense. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I think we're all right. We're on with plain sailing now. We've reached France. It's just that first bit. So, too many theories, mm-hmm. too many possibilities. <sighs> <laughs> well, Charles VIII was convinced that he was the prince, apparently. At least that's what he told the King of Scotland. Okay. But then if he created him, he obviously wasn't the prince. <laughs> anyway. Regardless of the truth or otherwise of this theory, Henry was convinced that Charles was behind all the conspiracies back in England as well. So Henry had been reluctantly pushed towards the war with France in April 1492, especially since it all started to go wrong and Maximilian had made peace with France and he, you know, he was meant to be on Henry's side and it, all was, it was just turning into a complete fiasco. But he was so fed up with all this Richard Duke of York stuff that by the end of November, he was sort of champing at the pit to get to France. He was just thinking, you know, fed up with the whole thing. Yes. It? And this was quite early on. So no wonder he was worried. You know, he knew how a group of exiles in Europe could overthrow the English court, as we've said, because yes. he did it himself. Yeah. So he got together a hastily formed army and set off across the channel right at the end of the fighting season. I think it was November. So, I mean, it's, you don't want to cross the no. channel in November anyway. No. So. no. And don't they, like, not fight during the winter? No. Well, that's it. Why suddenly start it in... The worst time possible. In, yeah. Yeah, why suddenly start it in November when you've you left yourself so little time? Yeah. Mind you, does the fact that Henry VII launched a hastily put-together out-of-season raid on France imply that he had good evidence that Perkin was Richard? I mean, if Richard were the joke that Henry pretended him to be... Why bother? I don't know. I think you've made it pretty clear, or at least very plausible. <laughs> I made something clear. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's incredibly plausible that he's seeing that they're doing, they're following exactly what he did, and he was successful. I think mm. that comes across as an extreme threat. But although he didn't have a huge link to the throne, he had some link. Yeah. Whereas, well, I suppose he didn't know who Perkin was at this point. Yeah. But. <laughs> There's often a but. In December 1492, Anne of Brittany repudiated Maximilian and contracted to marry Charles VIII. Yes. Charles no longer needed to worry about invading Brittany. He'd he was married to get it. it. Yep. Mm. And also, he wanted to go to war with Naples, as we've seen. He couldn't spend time faffing around fighting the English. No. So, meanwhile, what's Perkin up to? He went to Mass. He went hunting, he went to dances with Charles, he was given horses, dogs, falcons, even the use of the king's concubines. Ew. Yes. <laughs> hmm. Me. So this was all very well. But gradually, it dawned on Perkin that Charles wasn't offering him any concrete help. And then, in November 1492, France and England made peace, because I said France had its eyes on another prize. Yes. Perkin must have realised this put him in a very precarious position. Yeah. And not just him, but all the distance in the French court. Henry insisted that the codicil were added to the Treaty of Etaples, stating that each side promised not to help or shelter the traitors or rebels of the other. 
Polydor Virgil thought that the presence in France of Perkin was what pushed Henry towards making the piece. It was that codicil he was really after. Right. Actually, at the end of episode three, I've made a list of ways in which Perkin had an effect on the politics and the people of the of the time, and you know his tentacles seem to go everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Everybody had their own slant to what they oh, were trying. Tell to me do. about it. <laughs> <laughs> Perkin had been a useful tool for Charles in that he could use him as a threat to Henry or he could hand him over to Henry should it be more useful to Charles that Henry should be secure on his throne and be grateful to Charles mm-hmm. quite handy in both ways but Francis Bacon said upon the first grain of incense that was sacrificed upon the altar of peace at Boulange which is where the Treaty of Atarpla was signed Perkin was smoked away Good turn of phrase, Francis Bacon. Yeah. So Perkin, Taylor and co. were worried that Charles would go that extra mile for Henry and actually hand them over. So in December 1492, they fled for Flanders. They fled for... Oh, it's difficult to say. They fled for Flanders under the cover of darkness. (laughs) But if Charles created Perkin purely so that he could get Brittany, it was an extremely convoluted and well-planned strategy. Because it worked. It worked. Well, it sort of worked, you know. I mean, he actually, actually he got Brittany for, for getting married to it, but mm-hmm. it did keep Henry off his back at, to a certain extent. Right. But it was one with a very specific agenda. It was to get Brittany. Mm-hmm. So did Charles have any idea of the havoc that his creation would go on to wreak? If it, I, I liked the idea that Charles had just created Perkin for that one specific purpose. Yeah. And then it just went whoosh after that. Yeah. And he must have been thinking, whoa, Uh-oh. what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> so there you are. There's the four options. He was Piers Osbeck from Tournai. Tournai. He was Richard, Duke of York. He was Edward IV's illegitimate son. Or he was the creation of Charles VIII's to distract Henry. And I won't ask you to choose one. Well, you've chosen one before, but... I mean, frankly, at this stage, it could be any one of them. It really could. I'm sitting here trying to figure out which one would be the most likely, and I can't even... There are just too many people with too many fingers in this to unravel it. And sometimes the same people pop up in all of them doing different things. (laughs) Oh, no. But we've got through the worst. This feels like those horrible logic puzzles where they give you like five people on the side and a bunch of things at the top and you try to narrow down who is the culprit. Mm. Did you ever do those? I was never successful and this is what that feels like. <laughs> I think this is more complicated than that because at least with that there is a, there is a final answer, isn't Very there? Where is this one? Yeah, you can flip to the back of the book. <laughs> and all of them is, well, it could have been. Yeah. In the next episode, we'll follow Perkin and his mates to the court of Auntie Margaret, mm-hmm. Maximilian and Philip the Handsome, who all have their own agendas, yes. a specific agenda. But the agendas are much clearer. Okay. They're not subtle. It's quite obvious what they're all up to. Okay. 
And it's a hell of a lot less confused than this first episode. Okay. <laughs> so from now on, we just follow him. Through the actual actions that are happening rather yeah. than it could be this. Wow. Yeah. How messed up. Can you imagine trying to be a diplomat and trying to keep all of this straight? Well, I suppose they would hopefully have a bit more information than we've got. We've got great chunks of it missing. That's oh, true. Make you think. But then again, we might have information that they didn't have, so I don't know. I don't know either. How much do you feel you know about Perkin as a man? Absolutely nothing. Other than that, he must have been good looking and he wore nice clothes. Hmm. That's it. And he was either very charismatic. Well, I think he probably was charismatic. You would have whether to he, be... Whether he was brainwashed or not. I've, all the way through, I was thinking, where are you? Where are you, Perkin? <laughs> Who are you? Well, Perkin, actually, is a sort of infantilizing of, of a name. So it's a bit like calling him Peterkin. Oh. I think, I, got, I think it was Henry. Oh, right. Belittling him. Belittling, right. Mm. Because when they met, they talked in French. They met in Taunton, which is just down the road from here. And Henry used the tu form with him. The familiar form. And I wonder if that is because he could have always referred to him as le garçon. Mm -hmm. So you two talked to children using the tu form. But then it occurred to me, he was king. Presumably yes. everybody was below him. <laughs> so maybe he tued everybody. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. But somebody thought that was strange enough to, to pass on the information, so maybe maybe he was humiliating him in some way. I don't know, but what a jumble. I, I, I like the idea that Charles VIII created him. In some ways it was more complicated, but in some ways it was clearer because there's somebody with a specific agenda. Yes, that it just got out of control. He lost control of it, which seems... It, it seems more realistic that way. Yes. I don't like the theory that somebody was hanging around the docks waiting for someone that looked like Edward the no. to get off a boat. That Ooh. just seems most unlikely. Yeah. And then he gets off the boat and they think, oh, he can't speak English. Never mind, we'll teach him English. Think that really? Yeah. And you haven't even decided who he is yet. Yes. It just doesn't seem... It doesn't hold water for me. No. But I did... Initially, I started with the idea that it seemed very unlikely that the boys were still alive. But I came round to that much more. I really? Sort of, I felt I was sort of 60-40 in favour of them not being. But still, I was, yeah, I thought there was enough possibilities that they were still alive. Really? Maybe I haven't pushed that clearly enough in the argument that I gave. Well, I just assumed that it was part of what you were reading rather than your own personal view I... yeah no I came, I came around to it a lot more yeah initially I pretty much dismissed it mm -hmm. and I did think how tragic would that be if he really were Richard Duke of York oh, and oh. he's actually desperately trying to prove it yeah that would be hard mm. if that is the truth being like it would be the same as me trying to convince people that I'm me and how Mm. Frustrating would that be? Yes, and you got people, you got Maximilian and Margaret all saying, "No, it is. It really is. Yeah. It's him." Yeah. And everyone's saying, "Oh, please, just drop it. We need to sort out. We need to sort out this. We need to sort out the Holy League. We need to sort out this." Yes. But they're all saying, 
No, but it's him. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I was just thinking of when you know something or you believe you know something and you're trying to convince somebody else and you are personally invested in that belief, how upsetting it can be. Hmm. That would be amplified so much if all you were trying to convince people of was that you were you. And I suppose if Perkin had been brainwashed into thinking he was him, he'd be in the, mentally he'd be in the same situation. Yes. Yeah. It's only if he's an out and out fraud that Oh I felt I felt I did feel sorry for him in as much as I felt I knew him at all, which I didn't feel I knew him at all. In every single one of those scenarios, he really is actually a puppet. Somebody is using him for something. It doesn't sound like any of that was his own idea no. or or thought or this is what I want to do and putting it into action. It's everybody else pulling his strings. And it carries on like that. There's never a moment where you think, oh, this man has decided he wants to overthrow Henry. Yeah. Because he has no reason to, unless he really is Richard Duke of York. Yes. But even then, again, in order for him to get to what he wants, he can't even make his own decisions. He's got to rely on others to act for him because he mm. has no resources. No. As far as I know, he never, ever has any money of his own throughout his entire life. Well, yeah, where would he get it from? From now onwards, yes. He gets it from Charles, then Margaret, Maximilian, Scotland. and then James in Scotland, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, if you want to go off now and bang your head against a wall, feel free. <laughs> oh my gosh. At work, we have we have days that are bad. And <laughs> I said to my boss, I said, can we please buy a brick and install it about my forehead <laughs> level? <laughs> he looked at me like, why? And I'm like, so I can bang my head against it. <laughs> oh, man. That is the end of our episode. Well, the first installment of Perkin Warbeck. We hope you enjoyed it. You weren't too confused. <laughs> I am confused. <laughs> I'm confused. I've read three books on the subject. <laughs> I think I'm more confused from having read three books. I should have stuck with the first one and ignored the rest. No, no, we like delving into this. We do. But thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week. Next for week. part two. Part two. Mm. Which is a lot clearer, I Yay. think. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>